Today's episode is brought to you by Stream by AlphaSense, an expert interview transcript library that integrates AI-generated call summaries and NLP search technology so their clients can quickly pinpoint the most critical insights. Start your free trial at www.streamrg.co backslash PMC. That's S-T-R-E-A-M-R-G.co slash PMC. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not an offer or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell securities. SNN Network, SNN Inc., and the Planet Microcap Podcast and the representatives are not licensed brokers, broker dealers, market makers, investment bankers, investment advisors, analysts, or underwriters. We do not recommend any companies discussed. We may buy and sell securities in any company mentioned and may profit in the event those securities rise in value. We recommend you consult with a professional investment advisor, broker, or legal counsel before purchasing or selling any securities referenced in this podcast. Welcome to the Planet Microcap Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Kraft. Thank you all so much for the support and for tuning in. You can follow Planet Microcap on Twitter at Bobby K. Kraft. That's B-O-B-B-Y-K-K-R-A-F-T. And you're listening to episode 223. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to tweet at me or shoot me an email at rcraft at snnwire.com. When you do get a chance, if you like what you hear, please rate and review Planet Microcap on iTunes and Spotify. It really helps provide feedback for me and spread the microcap message. Special thank you to our sponsors for today's episode, Stream by AlphaSense, an expert interview transcript library that integrates AI-generated call summaries and NLP search technology so their clients can quickly pinpoint the most critical insights. Start your free trial at www.streamrg.co backslash PMC. That's S-T-R-E-A-M-R-G dot co backslash PMC. And Quarter, whose mission is to change the way people look at investor relations and create a completely new bridge between companies and stakeholders. Visit your app store of choice to try it out. And that's Quarter, Q-U-A-R-T-R. We are very excited to host our first in-person event in nearly three years. The Planet Microcap Showcase is back in Las Vegas on May 3rd through the 5th, 2022 at Bally's Hotel and Casino. It's time to see each other. It's time to network in person. Let's make it all happen in the entertainment and business capital of the world. For more information, please go to www.planetmicrocapshowcase.com. See you in Vegas. Now for this episode of the Planet Microcap Podcast, I spoke with Sid Grover founder and managing partner at Canterbury Lane Holdings. A recent guest on Planet Microcap when pitching Sid to be a guest on the show said to me that he expects Sid to be the next billionaire that started in the microcap ranks. After meeting Sid and our conversation you're about to hear, I can see why. I really enjoyed learning about Sid's approach to investing, taking a macro look at the world and trying to express that thesis in equities. Simple concept in theory, but I learned quite a lot when trying to understand what that means and his way of answering those questions. What is going on in the world economically and how do I leverage this information to make money? Thank you again for tuning in to episode 223 of the Planet Microcap podcast. And please enjoy my conversation with Sid Grover. This episode is brought to you by Stream by AlphaSets. You can find them at streamrg.co backslash PMC. That's S-T-R-E-A-M-R-G dot co backslash PMC. Stream is an expert interview transcript library that is starting to become an integral part to investors' research process. They have a number of interviews on a wide variety of companies, including TMT, consumers, industrials, real estate, and more. Stream provides over 300 expert interviews per week, and 70% of their experts are found exclusively on Stream. Stream is unlike any other transcript libraries. Stream integrates AI-generated call summaries and NLP search technology so their clients can quickly pinpoint the most critical insights. Stream's community of experts and thought leaders partner with Stream to build their professional brands and expand their industry influence. Right now, there are approximately 8,500 plus call transcripts available. For more information, please visit www.streamrg.co backslash PMC. That's S-T-R-E-A-M-R-G.co backslash PMC. 
Welcome back, everybody, to the Planet Microcap Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Kraft. You can follow me on Twitter at Bobby K. Kraft. That's B-O-B-B-Y-K-K-R-A-F-T. And joining me today is someone who uh, was pitched to me as they feel that he's probably the next billionaire to come out of the microcap uh, universe that we all know and love. And uh, I, this is our first time meeting each other. And I can already tell you he's a very humble person. So we probably definitely not, you know, uh, I don't mean to embarrass him at our first time meeting. But with that, I'd like to introduce uh, Sid Grover. He's the founder and managing partner of Canterbury Lane Holdings. Sid, thank you for joining me today. How are you doing, man? Uh, doing great, Robert. Thanks for your time. Thank you for joining. So I'll tell you which colleague it was offline. You know, they, uh, they're, they're very complimentary of you. I, I'm very curious. <laughs> <laughs> very good. Well, Sid, this is our, like I said, this is our first time having a chat together. And, um, you know, to, to be honest, they're, you know, in doing, I do a little bit of due diligence, a little bit of research prior to each interview, but there's not much to go on. You, you know, you're semi-anonymous. So this is a, a great, uh, exciting for me to understand why a respect, an investor who I respect a lot would potentially say that he thinks uh, this of you. So to start us off, you know, where did your passion for investing uh, begin? Sure. Um, so when I was growing up, uh, I, I think the subjects that I really enjoy, I, I really enjoyed any subject that kind of helped me better understand the way the world works at a sort of macro level. So growing up, I really enjoyed uh, reading a lot of books on international relations, on world history. Uh, and then when I got to uh, high school on macroeconomics. And so I, I think what I was trying to put together as a kid is sort of a mental model of how the world works. Um, so that I, I always enjoyed doing top-down thinking, not necessarily at the beginning through the lens of investing, but trying to understand the context for how you know, politics in certain countries works, how international relations works, how trade works, and uh, things like that. And then when I went to college, sort of by accident, I attended a club meeting that was a meeting for this organization that managed a small portfolio of the university endowment. And that was a that was very much intended to be in a Grahamian Buffett bottoms up analysis style. And so that, that introduced me to what people usually define as value investing and security analysis. And the journey since then has kind of been marrying this top down interest in thinking about the way the world works with bottoms up equity selection. And so the way that I would describe my investing framework in a nutshell today is macro-driven equity investing. And different investors have different ways of describing this particular style. I've seen some people describe it as global micro. Um, others call it inflection investing. Uh, but in a nutshell, it's finding interesting, powerful macroeconomic themes, but always expressing the view, not always, but generally expressing the view through uh, equities and stocks. All right. Well, th thank you for that background. I mean, what were you reading as a kid that inspired you to have that type of thinking at, from such a young age of top-down, bigger picture you know, heavy themes. This will seem like a very random answer, but when I was a, I, I spent half of my childhood in India. Uh, so my formative years in elementary and middle school. And at a used book fair or something, I got a copy of a high school international relations textbook that basically was this fantastic overview of post-World War II history. So it was something like 20 or 30 chapters, and every chapter was essentially a discussion of a different part of the world or a different geopolitical issue, for lack of a better word, and how we reached the present day. 
and what the key things to think about going forward are. So there was a chapter on the Middle East, which of course featured a lot about oil that drove Western involvement in the Middle East. There's a chapter on India. This is actually very pertinent. India's very close historical relationship with Russia, which dates back to the Cold War. And if I had to pick a single book that influenced my thinking the most, it wasn't the intelligent investor or Buffett's, <laughs> Buffett's investor letters or anything like that. It was this book. Uh, because it was, it was really well written and it uh, introduced me to the idea that you could distill these very simple but powerful frameworks for understanding the way the world works. Got it. All right. So Ket, let's catch us up here before we get into diving deeper on your philosophy and, and strategy and whatnot. So I'm assuming you graduate college, right? I did. Okay, good. So we graduate college, catch us up from graduating to then now uh, founding uh, Canterbury Land. Sure. So the, the intellectual detour is that in college, I studied math and computer science. And that was kind of a function of the fact that I went to both high school and college in Silicon Valley, where if you're not passionate about something, you will just get caught in the slipstream of everyone studying computer science on their way to Google and Facebook. And so I studied math and computer science. And at the same time that this interest in investing was developing, the most immediate natural convergence of those two interests was venture capital, technology investing, essentially. And so I spent a year out of college working at an enterprise software venture capital firm called 8VC. Uh, it was started by one of the founders of Palantir, Joe Lonsdale. And the investment thesis of 8VC essentially was to invest in vertical enterprise software companies. So companies that were, uh, you can think of enterprise software companies as either being horizontal, they address an issue that companies in every industry have, like sales, like accounting, and so on. And then there are vertical companies that address industry-specific workflows and data challenges like loan origination software or insurance corporate software. So I spent some time uh, doing venture capital investing at APC, which taught me how to do market and industry analysis because the investing for a venture capital firm, at least, was very thematic and top-down. And I did that for a year and then left to spend a couple of years bootstrapping my own enterprise software business in the higher education space, a business called Edfinity that sells online homework and assessment software to universities. And uh, that's now a profitable business doing well that I maintain some involvement with, though no longer day to day. And eventually came full circle back to investing and started Canterbury Lane about I'd like to take a quick second to tell you about this episode's sponsor, Quarter. With Quarter, you get frictionless access to conference calls, investor presentations, transcripts, and earnings reports from markets all around the world, straight from your pocket for no cost. Quarter's mission is to change the way people look at investor relations and create a completely new bridge between companies and stakeholders. The first step on this journey is to let you, the user, interact with the company's content while you're listening. Visit your app store of choice and try it out today by searching for Quarter, and that's Q-U-A-R-T-R. Now back to the show. So then what eventually led you to, you know, uh, I was introduced to you uh, by by Harris Perlman from Otter Market, uh, at Otter Market, recent guest on the show, you know. You were you were just in a photo with Ian Castle uh, at a at a dinner in, in in I think it was in Dallas. So in Austin, I'm it, oh, it was in Austin. Austin. Oh, you're yeah. in Austin. Oh, okay, of course, everybody's in Austin. Um, <laughs> so, so how'd you get to microcaps? I mean, VC world, you, you got a startup, and now you're microcaps. You have this international top down approach, and now you're microcaps. So I'd love to learn. Sure. So. My transition back into investing really was driven by a growing interest in the commodity space. And 
that naturally involves looking at a lot of microcaps because a lot of the companies in the commodity and resources space are microcaps. Uh, they go from being microcaps to large caps and then microcaps again. But generally, if you are entering those sorts of companies at the right point in the cycle, many of them, including the good ones, are microcaps. And the reason why I became interested in that area was really a meta-investment thesis around ESG and divestment from the fossil fuel industry. So essentially, to make a very long story short, there are a lot of commodities that are essential to the functioning of the world for the foreseeable future. Think oil, think gas, think coal, uh, think any sort of extractive industry business like mining and metals. And because of politic, and I don't mean to go on a political sort of rant here, but there's a lot of pressure on the people who allocate money to hedge funds and so on to no longer support these industries. And as long ago as when I was a freshman in college, uh, forcing my university endowment to divest from oil and gas was the hot button issue at the time. And so you have these industries that are going to continue to need to function uh, or attempt to function as we're starting to see right now, but they have an artificially high cost of capital now because participants in those capital markets are now withdrawing. And so for the same reason why people find microcaps an interesting opportunity set, uh, it's, a, it's a different game you can play. You know, I, I know Harris talks a lot about game selection, right? And so I came at this thinking about it in the same way. This is a game where the largest, most sophisticated pools of capital in the world are choosing not to participate. And we know it's a game in which there's money to be made because these commodities need to continue to be used. Uh, and so that's what actually brought me into the microcap world. It was very much through the lens of looking at these sorts of companies. So let's let's continue down that rabbit hole a little bit. So, so you're when you're talking about microcaps, it sounds like specifically that you're really just looking at commodities right now. So within that, you know, what are some what are the sorts of things that you're looking for within that opportunity set? Sure. So. There, there are different, there are maybe three or four dimensions of risk that I think you need to underwrite as an investor in these companies. The first and perhaps most important is jurisdictional risk. So when you're in the energy and mining and metals businesses, you are doing, you're in a business that has a lot of political risk. And that can have that can come in different different shapes and forms. So if you are drilling for oil and extracting oil, then when oil prices are high, you have a big target on your back to be taxed or regulated more heavily. And we're starting to see that now. Recently, some of the members of Congress are saying we should enact windfall taxes on oil and gas producers because consumers are hurting. And also, these are businesses that disrupt the environment, that disrupt a local ecosystem. And you need to make sure that whatever you're doing is with the consent and buy-in of the relevant stakeholders and communities. And so jurisdictional risk essentially is making sure that a business is on solid footing in those respects. Because what you see all the time is there's a microcap mine. It has a, it's advancing a mine and development in some South American or African country. And then maybe there's a coup, there's a new minister of mining, the permit gets revoked, and then your equity is impaired, right? So that's the first thing to look at. The second has to do with operational risk. So how difficult is it for them to actually execute on the production or operational plan that they have in place? And not all mines or all oil and gas operations are created equal. 
like uh, uh, a small open pit operation might be simpler if higher cost than a more complicated underground mining operation that is dealing with challenging geology. It's also different for different commodities. For example, coal is metallurgically very simple. There isn't a complicated set of processes that you need to follow once you mine your coal in order to turn it into a saleable product. On the other hand, mining uranium and turning uranium into saleable yellow cake is metallurgically more complex. And there's a lot more regulation around how you dispose of the tailings and the byproducts, understandably. Um, so, so that's the operational risk. And that has to do with if it's a mine that's already in production, looking at its history, looking at how its costs have trended over time, how that is compared to management guidance. And if it's a mine that's not in production, as many microcaps often are, it has to do with looking at management's track record. Have they brought similar assets into production? Do they have the right operational team that has overseen similar assets and so on? And then the third uh, is basically, there are a couple of different ways of thinking about it. You can think of it as commodity price risk or cost curve risk. So for any given commodity or resource, there's a cost curve, which is essentially plotting what the break-even cost of production is for the universe of people who can mine or produce that commodity. And if you're on the low end of that cost curve, that means you'll probably make money in any price environment. But if you're on the higher end of the cost curve, you might be more leveraged to a bull market in that commodity, but you might, you might have liquidity issues in a down cycle. And so all else being equal, you would prefer lower cost producer. Now the challenge is that very often Mr. Market sets it up such that high cost producers trade at a discount to low cost producers. And so one of the challenges is figuring out when you are getting a good deal in terms of the risk you're taking on. And of course, this has to do with your, this is the part where the top-down macro thinking comes into play. Because if you have very strong conviction that you're going to have an extended period of very high prices, then you'd want to buy the high-cost producers. But you know, in terms of my personal investment approach, even when I have been very bullish on a particular commodity and in retrospect being right about it, just because of wanting to sleep well at night, I tend to tend towards the lower cost producers. So it leaves some amount of returns on the table, but of course it gives you some downside risk protection. But essentially that, that's, the, that's the trinity of risk factors that I generally think about. Got it. I mean, is there is there a commodity right now or based on your research that you've been particularly focused in? And yeah, let's start there. Sure, no, there, there were a couple. Thermal coal is very interesting to me. Thermal coal is the coal that you use to produce electricity. So you burn it and it is generally a substitute for natural gas. So there are two markets that are linked, but quasi-independent, which is the US domestic thermal coal market and the international thermal coal market, what's also called the seaborne thermal coal market. And I'm talking about the latter one. And that really has to do with two things. The first is that Europe, is now understanding that natural gas for them is going to be higher and for longer, stay higher and for longer. And this was even before any of the sort of geopolitical risks started to manifest with Russia and their supply to Europe. But essentially Europe starting last winter started to go into an energy crisis because U.S. LNG capacity is maxed out. So the U.S. cannot export more of our natural gas to Europe 
because it's constrained by LNG terminal export capacity. So they're not getting more, any more natural gas from us. They were short to begin with. And now the supply that they did count on last winter, which is the supply from Russia, is now starting to come into question. And it's not clear how that will be resolved, but what is clear is that it is going to make the economics of using thermal coal rather than natural gas compelling. And that has dragged up thermal coal prices, not just in the immediate month, but with commodities, there's a future strip of prices that go out into the future, right? And so the entire future strip of thermal coal has re-rated upwards. And the fascinating thing is this is now coming full circle to the ESG and the political intervention in these markets is that thermal coal production isn't substantially increasing. Glencore is not substantially increasing its production. Whitehaven is not substantially increasing its production. And the, and so the general wisdom around commodity cycles is that high prices cure high prices because eventually high prices incentivize overproduction that brings prices down. But you're not seeing that. And the other way in which the ESG component becomes relevant, and this is coming to the Grahamian side of the equation, is these companies are trading at low single-digit free cash flow multiples. And at this point, because they've, got, they've had about a year to 18 months of good prices, these companies are now completely delevered. And they are in a position to return cash to shareholders. And most of them are now, if you take Whitehaven as an example, and I forgot to mention that I do own Whitehaven, both on a personal basis and in my fund. Whitehaven has a sort of programmatic capital return policy for shareholders that they will return 25 to 50% net profit after tax in the form of dividends and buybacks. And they have a buyback authorization in place that they are using. And you can effectively compute what your dividend is going to be. And so you have a company like Whitehaven, which at the current future strip is going to earn its market cap or really its enterprise value and free cash flow in the next two years. The market is telling you that there's no terminal value for the company after that, which is the bet that I'm taking the other side of. And you get paid to wait because you are getting the dividends and you're getting the buybacks. So there's an analogy that some people draw to the cigarette companies, to the tobacco companies, that they became unownable in the late 80s, early 90s. And since then, they've been the best performing sector on the S&P. I am cautious with that analogy because cigarette companies and tobacco businesses are operationally much simpler than mining and energy. A lot less can go wrong. And so you take on less risk. And also those are companies that have always had excellent management teams. They're probably the most shareholder friendly sector in the history of capitalism. Whereas in commodity and natural resources, you need to be a lot more cautious about investing in management teams that are not empire building. But the good news for the few participants left in these markets is that there is a lot of pressure being put on these management teams to not, to not invest in new production or unaccretive production or M&A for as long as the stock is trading at two times cash flow. Because how could you possibly justify putting equity capital at risk to build a new mine when you're trading at two times cash flow? And you can guarantee an excellent return on equity just by buying your own stock. So thermal coal is one that I'm very interested in. Uh, tin is a, is a bit of a different 
story, but it's one that I'm also very interested in and, uh, and, and have uh, exposure to. And then oil and gas, of course, as well. Absolutely. And are those the only sectors that you do focus on when in, in microcaps or just for your fund? Or is this more just based from the top down approach, seeing what, you know, the mechanisms of what's going on in the world. So that that's just your focus right now. Cause the reason I asked that is because I also want to understand your, your, your time frame. you know, how, mm-hmm. how long you prefer to hold some of these stocks or be in some of these sectors. So love to hear your thoughts there. Yeah, sure. These are absolutely not the only ones. Uh, I could just go on and on for hours if, if I listed all of them. But you know, other sectors that I have or have recently had exposure to include metallurgical coal. This is a, the coal that's used to produce steel in the blast furnace steel production process. There's steel itself, so steel producers. Uh, and um, let's see, what have I not enumerated there? And uh, iron ore, which is the other input ingredient to the steel production process. So you, so you really see that commodities, I mean, okay, on, on the commodity cycle right now, I mean, do you see this as a, as a long-term approach where, you know, I mean, it's talked about ad nauseum with supply chain issues and, you know, various quality projects that are producing, you know, at, at lower costs and actually making money. So is, is this more of a long-term thesis? Absolutely. I, I, I would say so. I, I do agree that there's a lot more talk about commodities and inflation today than maybe 18 to 24 months ago. But the reality is that the underlying issues that set up this upcycle have not changed. So something I laughed at recently is the day that, laughed at in sort of a tragic way out of sympathy, is that the day that natural gas prices in Europe gapped up 20% last week or the week before in response, I believe, to Russia saying that they wanted payment in rubles is the same day that ING, which is a massive European bank and one of the largest European financiers of energy and minings and metal businesses, said that they're going to completely wind down their investment and exposure to fossil fuels. So people are starting to talk about the energy crisis today because you're starting to see the effect of it at the gas station, but you're not seeing the underlying issues solved yet, right? We're not seeing companies increasing production. We're not seeing equity capital flowing into this space to re-rate these companies to higher multiples. And we're not seeing public support for a massive expansion in these industries to where they used to be. And these things are all related, right? People, something that isn't always obvious until you look at the space is the fact that valuations of these companies actually affect future production for the reason I said earlier. Because if a company is trading at 20 times earnings, then it makes sense for them to increase production because every increase in production they realize translates into a lot of value for them. But when they're trading at two times cash flow, they're not going to build a new mine, right? And so the divestment is only increasing. The political pressure on these companies is only increasing. Like if you're calling for windfall taxes on oil and gas companies, why is an oil and gas company going to feel comfortable investing in a long cycle oil project, right? To them, and and I'm not taking a political stand here. I'm just trying to be an impartial assessor of the environment and how rational actors in these companies will react to them. So I agree that there's a lot of discussion now about commodities today, but in terms of where we are in the cycle, I, 
to give a good answer to you, you really need to go commodity by commodity because each of these commodities has different supply demand fundamentals. And there are absolutely, absolutely some commodities where we could be at or near cycle peaks today, like metallurgical coal. And we may very well have passed the cycle peak. What that doesn't necessarily talk about though, in terms of owning metallurgical coal is what will the new long-term average be, right? Historically, the long-term average in the med coal industry, uh, and, and this, is, this is a bit of a problematic statement because there are different kinds of med coal uh, and qualities and so on, but say it was about $150. And we have hit, we have gone north of 600, you know, in the last couple of months after Russia's invasion of Ukraine. So these companies are trading at obviously ridiculous, they're trading at less than one times free cash flow at $600, but that's obviously not a sustainable price. The question is if the new long-term average is 200 or 250, which it could be, maybe not 250, but it certainly could be 200. What is the terminal value that Mr. Market is telling you? Because if you're earning your entire market cap at these sky high prices this year, right? Mr. Market is saying there's no value to this company after December. Even though at $200 a ton, it's probably trading at two times free cash flow, right? So you could ignore all of the cash that the company is making at the prices today and still effectively earn the market, the enterprise value and free cash flow over a 24 to 36 month period. So the real reason why I think you'll find that a lot of people are just not bothering to think about what is this going to look like in five, six years is that you actually, for some of these commodities, you don't need to look past 18 months. I mean, that's that seems to be the norm though, no matter what kind of geopolitical macro events are happening right now, right? Um, I mean, I've been, I've been covering the, so funny you're bringing all this up. I just did another interview for, for this podcast talking about the various cycles in all the different commodities and how okay. he was, he was actually, he made a, he made a the point that, uh, well, he was, he was speaking specifically to, to, um, to more speculative stuff where you have to be more short-term um, in your thinking and your approach, just because, you know, if you, if you find the right project, right time, and it's, it's by right time, it means on the up cycle, you know, if it's a good project with good management, you know, you could probably ride that wave nice and then just have in your mind that, okay, just try and be as well aware as to when that market will peak and then most likely unload. But you're talking more on, you're talking, you, you're looking more at producers anyway than you are at, you know, some of these explorers, it sounds like, right? Yeah, that's right. And it's not that I wouldn't look at explorers or developers. It's just that, and this is again, going back to how the multiples in the industry are affecting the cycle itself. If you can buy a producer at a low single digit free cash flow multiple, there's a really high bar for the explorers and developers because you take on a lot more risk. And whenever I take on more risk of any sort, whether it's jurisdictional, whether it's development, whether it's cost curve, I want to make sure I'm getting paid for it. And if you can buy the low cost producer at a very attractive valuation, it makes it difficult for me personally to make the case to buy something where the challenge for explorers and so on with me is that, you know, those companies can be multi-baggers and very oftentimes they're zeros, right? And also a lot of the thesis in the commodity world, which is shared across commodities is that the regulatory environment is becoming more and more hostile which is making it harder and harder to bring new projects into development, which means that the value of being an, an existing project relative to something in the pipeline is even greater. 
So I, I certainly do look at companies that are not producing, particularly because at the bottom, I, I want to be coming into these things at the bottom of the cycle. And around then you have companies going through bankruptcy, mines on care and maintenance, and so on. And at that point, I am looking at non-producing assets. It's just that at the moment, the relative valuations are not super compelling. So, you know, you mentioned growing up in, in Silicon Valley and in, in middle school, high school, um, not to sound not, I don't want this. I don't mean this to sound like a silly question, but I, I kind of have to ask, you know, being that you're, you are focused right now on, on the energy crisis and trying to find and uncover opportunities within that, which includes coal and, and oil and gas, you know, what, 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 <laughs> what does some of your family and friends say back home when they're like, what you're looking at? these things and 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 there's it's probably on you to have to do a lot of that education gap and say hey you know i get what you're saying but let's look at the reality of the situation i'm sure those conversations are so much fun no i i I enjoy them and you know it's it's just it's really surprising to be honest how much misinformation there is in the in the world about energy and where things come from and what actually powers and makes our day-to-day lives possible right and for some people it some very educated friends of mine who are extremely intelligent individuals this isn't to dig at their intelligence or anything when I walk them through how much coal is used today and how much coal will always be used, not always, but for the foreseeable future on the order of decades through the 2030s and 2040s, right? Just because most of the incremental energy demand is coming from the poorest parts of the world, right? And they need cheap electricity and that cheap electricity is coal. When you explain the argument like that, it it makes sense. And then there's a different thing that I think a lot of folks realize, which is there's actually something deeply immoral in my view about depriving emerging markets of energy, right? Uh, Particularly because the West built its industry and and the standard of life that we're used to on the back of fossil fuels. And a lot of Renewables, and I'm absolutely not an, uh, an opponent of renewable energy. I think we absolutely need to solve our climate crisis as well. But I think we also need to be realistic about making sure that we don't cause an energy crisis like the one we're in today along the way. And I think the problem is that it, a lot of people find themselves on one end of the spectrum or the other, right? And I think it's, it's really helpful to try to take a balanced view of eventually we're going to need, we're going to need more carbon friendly sources of energy like nuclear energy. But if carbon capture technologies are successful, then certainly we're going to want to leverage those. But none of this is going changes the reality that in India and China, a million people every month move from the low, uh, from the, below the poverty line to what they define as the middle class, right? And they go from a bicycle to a two-wheeler or a two-wheeler to a car, or they move from an apartment that doesn't have an AC to one that does have an AC. And all of that requires electricity. And, and the way to solve decarbonification is reducing demand, not reducing supply. And the way that environmental activism has worked to date is reducing supply and hoping that demand goes down. And that is why we're running into some of the crises that we're dealing with right now. So I'm going to ask like a classic, like mainstream financial media question. Mm-hmm. You ready, you ready, ready for my, my best impression of a mainstream financial media question? Sure. Okay. 
So <laughs> God, it's, I've, I've already feeling myself sound like an idiot even asking this, but I don't care. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask anyway. So <laughs> how long could this go for? This, this pure energy. I mean, we we're in it, this energy crisis. I mean, how long does this really, does your outlook kind of look, look like for being able to solve this potential problem where things then eventually maybe normalize or will it ever again? That was pretty good, right? It's CNBC. It was like a CNBC. <laughs> yeah. It's a really hard question. And I think it's easier to try to answer that commodity by commodity, but I understand the spirit of your question. I'm not sure that we can go back to the kinds of commodity prices that we were used to, that we benefited from in the last decade, because that all assumed a very different capital markets environment for these companies. Like there was a time when, I mean, you, this might have might fall within the ambit of what you cover. Every private placement that these junior producers were doing was oversubscribed two or three times, right? And they all had money to bring their minds into production and so on. And so we no longer have that. And so the way a market can eventually balance is when right now in a situation where demand exceeds supply, which is why we have high prices. And so if we just work with those two gears, either supply needs to come up or demand needs to come down. The way we'll know supply is coming up is when we start to see tons of IPOs of new young com uh, junior companies in these commodities trying to bring new mines into production. We'll see, we'll see companies, even large producers doing a lot of greenfield expansion, saying that that's a better use of return, shareholder return. That's a better way of returning capital to shareholders than doing dividends or buybacks. We would see we would need to see governmental policy becoming very supportive of new greenfield activity. And we're not seeing any of those things yet. So the only other way in which we see price, prices coming down is demand reducing. And that is a very scary thought because if you think about how high oil can go before people will stop driving or drive less. I don't know where that is, but it, it's, it's not at current gas prices. Right now you fill your tank up and you're unhappy about it. I'm unhappy about it. I filled my, <laughs> I filled my car on the weekend. Um, but, but we're not seeing we're not seeing road trips getting canceled on Mars. We're not seeing people pushing to work at home more because the cost of driving to the office is that painful. That's where commodities need to get to before demand destruction will kick in. And, and I don't know when that happens, but the way that I think about it is, is really from the supply side because I hope that it doesn't get to the point at which demand balances the market by coming down. And so I'm, I'm constantly watching for governments saying, hey, you know what, we were wrong, we need oil and gas, we will need oil and gas for the foreseeable future, even as we transition to a green economy. There's actually a fantastic chart that I know if you'll be able to put it up or put a link to it in the notes, but I'll, I'll send it to you. It basically shows EV penetration in Norway against their oil consumption in the country. And setting aside the irony that Norway is basically a petro state that makes all of its money from oil and it subsidizes those EVs with oil profits from Equinor, setting that aside, what's incredible is that as EV penetration has gone from zero to, 
I think about 60% in Norway today, oil consumption has stayed basically flat. Right? Oil, oil consumption has not gone down in Norway. And I think that really speaks to the fact that these fossil fuels are building blocks for human life. And as population increases, global population increases, as standards of living for people around the world increase, as people start buying warmer, fancier nylon jackets in the winter, we will continue to use fossil fuels. And I think governments acknowledging that, and as importantly, capital markets participants acknowledging that, is the thing that needs to happen before you can see the supply side fix the market. Yeah, I need I need to bring on a, a you know I've I've done in the last two years I've done some interviews with with uh, some ESG fund managers or you know focused on ESG types of investments and I need I need to get their perspective on what's happening right now because I've you know I've spoken I, I've had I, I did I'm doing an interview with you recently had Josh Young on from Bison Interest um, and and you know it's it's basically espousing very similar things right is that. We can't just do away with it altogether. We just can't. Right. We just can't. Um, simply put, not not trying to trivialize it, but when it comes to just our own, you know, first world consumption, and then looking at you know uh, emerging economies, uh, emerging markets, third world countries, it just you just can't. You can't. You can't turn off the spigot just yet. Um, and that's probably and that's not going to happen for a very long time. Um, so it'd be interesting to understand from an ESG uh, fund manager perspective, you know how how they how they think about that because it it, it must be trivializing. I agree, and there are a lot of ways in which investing in certain com- commodities in certain parts of the world is actually in the spirit of ESG. This is the point that Josh Young. Uh, I don't know him personally, but I follow his commentary and I enjoy it. He makes this point that if you assume that the oil is going to be produced, which it will be, because people are going to want to fill their cars, would you rather it happen in the US or Canada, where we have the best environmental standards in the world, or would you rather it happens in Venezuela or Siberia, where there's basically no environmental standards, no environmental regulation, and pictures of oil operations in those countries are actually shocking. It's just like black ink all over the picture, right? Um, Would you rather we we mine copper in Canada or where we know we're not gonna be using child slave labor or would we rather do it in Africa where there's a very good chance that women and children are just being kidnapped from their villages and being forced to mine at gunpoint, right? So there's a very interesting argument that you can, which I think is, I think it's an intellectually honest argument, which is if you assume that we need these commodities, then you are actually supporting ESG and the principles and spirit of ESG by investing in the companies that are doing that business responsibly. Because otherwise, you see Western governments put pressure on companies in those jurisdictions to exit. And the folks that step in, like like Africa, in Africa, and, and this isn't picking on all African jurisdictions, there's some really good African jurisdictions like like Namibia and so on that have good regulation, good standards and have been good partners to companies that operate there. But simple reality is that Western environmental standards are the highest that there are, right? And so oil that we extract in the Canadian oil sands has a lower carbon footprint than some some kind of conventional well in Siberia. So I think we I think we I think we covered most of what was what your kind of is your main focus right now uh, based on on what you're seeing from the macro perspective and you know that that's affecting everyone globally. Is there any other 
big macro trends that you've been looking at that maybe not as closely with on the the energy crisis, but anything else that you're seeing that you're starting to maybe uh, dive into a little bit more? To be honest, not really. (laughs) There are others that are not technically energy, but there are derivatives of energy. Like there's a lot of disruption happening in the agriculture world. And the reason for that is you need fertilizers to grow to grow agricultural produce at the scale that we need to. And a lot of fertilizers, if you take nitrogen-based fertilizers like ammonia, that's basically natural gas. And so natural gas flows through, it affects the fertilizer market, ends up affecting the price of corn and wheat and so on. Uh, there's another one that I that I'm focused on at the moment that is steel, which isn't quite a. I guess it is technically a commodity. It's not a resource that's mined, and that's actually an investment thesis that has far more of a geopolitical bent than usual. And the reason for that is that the energy crisis in Europe has sent their electricity prices sky high. And a good 40% of European steel production is what's called EAF, electric arc furnace, which means that it uses electricity to as part of its process. And because of the cost of electricity, that production has gone dark. It's basically turned off. And so North American steel producers who use the traditional blast furnace steel production method, which is iron ore and coal, from a cost perspective, they are very highly advantaged. And so because European steel has kind of, has taken a huge hit, European steel prices have gone up very high and the Asian exporters who traditionally export steel to the US and Europe, are now sending all of their steel to Europe. And because the US generally imports some of its steel consumption, that equation, the fact that US imports have now gone to zero or have gone down a lot, has is a very constructive force for steel prices in the US. And so there's, there's a good price outlook, and also U.S. steel producers are cost advantage. So that has me interested in steel producers at the moment, like I currently own U.S. steel, Tikozax. But uh, I, I can't quite think of non-energy, non-commodity related Themes, everything seems to affect those in one way, be affected by those in one way or another. And there's also the fact that despite having a macro bent, I am an equity investor at heart. So I'm not trading currencies or rates or weird derivative instruments. And so I'm limited to the to looking at investment theses that I can express through equities. Very good. Sid, I think, I think we covered quite a bit. Um, I mean, my, my last question for you is, you know, when you're going through your research process, you know, you're in microcaps, well, not, not totally, but for the, for, for the microcaps that you do cover and, you know, I I know you're coming to our event in Vegas. Um, Do you, do you prefer, you like to you like to speak with management and, and get a, just a better feel because I know from the many resource investors that I've talked to over the years, especially in you know everything sub five hundred million, it's right. almost it's almost like the first thing you should do. Yeah, I yes and no. I do talk to management, but I try to stick to management teams that have track records that you can look at because that means a lot more to me than someone saying, don't worry, Sid, the permit is a rock solid thing. So 
you know, if someone is bringing a mine into production in Chile, I'll feel a lot better if I can see that at the last two companies they were at, they got the permits they needed for their mine in Chile, rather than, you know, their last rodeo was a cobalt mine in the DRC. And now they're learning Chile for the first time. And, uh, but, but yes, speaking to management is really important. And especially in these non-ESG compliant, which is what I call these non-ESG compliant commodities, because you can't count on equity re-rating past a certain point, right? Once a company gets to, you know, hundreds of millions or a billion plus in market cap, you just don't have the actively managed pools of capital for it to be a multi-bagger from there, right? A lot of your return, I think, and, and this could be wrong. I could be wrong and there might be a big come to Jesus moment where people realize we need oil and then all the money starts flowing into oil. But assuming that that doesn't happen, a lot of your return is gonna be coming from dividends and buybacks. And those are actions that management teams need to, need to enact on your behalf, right? Unless you manage to take control of the company somehow. So I, I agree, you absolutely need to, you need to talk to management teams, if only for that reason. So my, my last question for you today, before I, before I let you go, and this is my favorite question to ask everybody on here. You know, from what would you say is an investing experience that taught you the most or has guided you on the path that you're on today? Investing experience that guided me the most put me on the path that I'm on today. I'm not sure that I could name a single, a single experience. I've, I've made tons of mistakes and each one of those mistakes has turned into an investing principle that I now use to screen investments going forward. Uh, for example, I uh, you know, made, made the mistake of investing once in a management team that had a good track record bringing gold assets into production and they tried and they weren't successful in bringing a copper asset into production. And this was earlier on in my, in, in, in my investing journey in the commodity world, but I didn't fully appreciate at the time the extent to which different commodities and operating different types of mines are completely different skill sets. And so like that, you know, I've taken a lot of knots and I, all I try to do is not make the same mistake twice. Very good. All right, well, Sid, I think we're pretty much there. So any final thoughts, any final words of encouragement for all the, the, the bright-eyed, bushy-tailed investors that are listening in and watching right now? Uh, I, I, I just <laughs> leave, you with, leave them with the same thought that 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 Harris that Otto brought up on your show, I think that game selection is really important. It's basically what led to my focus today. And I think it it's the reason why I, I think so many people do well in this microcap world. And 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 so I, I think yeah think thinking long and hard about game selection is is a good idea. I'm not sure if that was the profound wisdom you were looking for. No, I, I think that that's, that is incredible wisdom. I think that, you know, uh, it, it's been, you know, it's been said in different ways on here before. And um, that's always my big thing when I talk about, when anybody asks me about the things, the number one thing that I've learned from Planet Microcap, and that's, um, you know, folks are very much invested in their own game. You know, not, not so, not even, yeah, they talk about investments and this and that and all that good stuff. But at the end of the day, you know, that's why I like understanding, you know, everyone's philosophy and strategy, because that's where that's where your meat and potatoes is. 
right? And that's and that's the real lessons that folks can learn is, um, you know, just mastering of your own game, and that that yeah. is and that's an always ongoing process, right? It's, you know, you can generally know more or less, but you're always learning as long as you, as long as you're sticking to it. But Sid, with that, where can our audience go and find more information to follow you and learn more about Canterbury Lane Holdings? Sure. I'm on Twitter. Uh, My handle is Canterbury underscore Sid. And that's where that's my public presence. Very good. Sid, always, it was really great speaking with you and a great meeting you. And uh, I look forward to seeing you soon, man. Let's go. We'll, we'll grab a beer in Vegas. Grab a drink in Vegas. All right. See you soon. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not an offer or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell securities. SNN Network, SNN Inc., and the Planet Microcap Podcast and the representatives are not licensed brokers, broker dealers, market makers, investment bankers, investment advisors, analysts, or underwriters. We do not recommend any companies discussed. We may buy and sell securities in any company mentioned and may profit in the event those securities rise in value. We recommend you consult with a professional investment advisor, broker, or legal counsel before purchasing or selling any securities referenced in this podcast podcast.